Turn your copy of God's Word this morning to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, as you turn there, I just want you to consider the words we sang a moment ago in light of where we'll be this morning. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly, find Him wholly true. We're going to look at this morning, Psalm 63, and we're going to understand the truth of this verse of that hymn. That every trial is from above and it's traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. A beautiful image that expresses the truth of Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is our text. You don't need to turn back unless you just want to, but Psalm 63 really begins in 2 Samuel 15. In 2 Samuel 15, we, we read of the tragic account of Absalom's rebellion against his own father, David. King David, living his life, ruling his kingdom, seems to have everything that he needs, everything is going well, and Absalom begins to conspire against him in 2 Samuel 15. He did this by standing at the city gates and as people came in to plead their case to the king or to present their case or to present their victories, whatever it may be, as he said that, or as, as they came, he would speak to them, ask them what was going on, ask them what their circumstance was, and then kind of backdoor send a message to say, you know, there's, there's no one here to really help you with that. If I was king... Well, I would take care of things. I would take care of you. You need someone to speak on your behalf. Scripture tells us that by so doing, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And he did this for four years. Four years undermining and conspiring against his own father to undermine what King David was doing. The conspiracy, we read, then grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing it increased to the point that which it became very apparent that David and all of his subjects had to flee. They flee their house, they flee Jerusalem into the wilderness. They run for their lives. And what does David do? David writes Psalm 63. In the wilderness, David writes Psalm 63. I, I just want you to think in the back of your mind, I want you to consider the difficulty that David found himself in. I want you to consider the pain and the brokenness that's in David's life in this moment. Some of you in here, you sit here today gathering, knowing full well the difficulty and the pain of brokenness within your homes, within your families. The, the times that perhaps some of you in here, like David, you've been betrayed by those who you would never think would betray you. David, suffering through family brokenness. His own son working against him. His own son sending men to find him, to apprehend him. David having to flee for his very life into the wilderness. And he responds, writing Psalm 63. It, it beckons the question for us, is, what is our response to the difficulties of life? 
How, how do we respond? Where do we look? Do we turn from God? Do we run from God? Do we harbor bitterness? Do we become angry? Does our faith falter? Or do we continue in faith? Do we worship Him knowing that all the trials and all the sorrows of life come under the purview of the sovereign God? That there's nothing that takes Him by surprise. There's nothing that catches Him off guard. How do we respond? Let's read the word of the Lord in Psalm 63 and think more about this this morning. So with that in our context, David in the wilderness fleeing for his own life from his own son, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. We're going to just kind of break this psalm into three segments from David. We'll look at verse 1 as a, a declaration of faith. Then we'll move on to consider the exercise of faith in verses 2 through 8, and then the confidence of faith in verses 9 and 10. But let's consider first this declaration of faith that David makes in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. David is resolute. He's he's set upon the Lord in a moment of great difficulty, great trial, a moment in which I think I would be shaken. A moment in which most of us would be shaken. His own son rebelling against him. And David is resolved to worship the Lord. He declares his faith. Oh God, you are my God. He makes his declaration of of trust and allegiance to the Lord. There's two aspects of this statement we need to consider. One is that David's statement here is more than just an acknowledgement of truth. It's not just an acknowledgement of truth. David does not... Look upon the Lord and say, Oh God, you are God. He's not merely acknowledging truth. Does David believe that? Absolutely. But I want you to see that what he's doing here is more than a mere acknowledgement of truth. It is a confession of faith. It is a declaration of faith. He does not just say, Oh God, you're God. No, he says, Oh God, you are my God. 
You are my God. And we're reminded here instantly that, that being a Christian is more than agreeing with the truthfulness of the Bible. It's more than just knowing right theology. It's more than appreciating the morality of Jesus in his life and ministry. No, being a Christian is beholding God and his work in Christ and confessing him that, to him that you are my God. I worship you. I exalt you. And so the first question we're confronted with in this psalm, the question I was confronted with right away in studying and preparing this week, Oh God, you are my God. Is that my declaration of faith in every day? Oh God, you are my God. I worship you. The second thing about this statement is that it's one of right worship rather than idolatry. He truly is making a statement of right worship rather than idolatry in the face of his own son's rebellion and the, the face of his people turning their back on him. The people that he had fought for, laid his life down for, that he had, he had led. He's losing his kingdom. He's running for his life. In the face of this, David looks to the Lord and he says, God, you are my God. His family wasn't his God. His kingdom was not his God. His own life was not his God. It was not to be worshipped. Listen, the trials of life quickly reveal who or what you worship. If you want to know what a person worships, look very quickly at how they respond in the trials of life. And see, David here, his statement is, oh God, you are my God. And the question, again, we need to consider is, how would we state that? Would we state, oh God, you are my God? Or would we state, oh family, you're my God? Oh job, you're my God? Oh, friends, I worship you. Oh, my house, my possessions, it's my God. Oh, my, my hobbies, my enjoyment, my entertainment, it's my God. How do we know? How, how do we know what that confession would be? Well, I, I would say right off the bat that, that it's more than just mere talk, right? Any of us in here could could just kind of talk the talk and say, oh, yeah, yeah, God's my God. I, I worship him. The question is, what does your soul long for? What do you really long for? What do you, what do you yearn for? See, David's soul longed and yearned for God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's longing is for the Lord. The question is, when everything's taken away, when that which you hold most dear is gone, when those you love turn their back against you, does your faith vanish? What you hold most dear is suddenly revealed. You see, David is sitting in the midst of the wilderness. He's gone into the wilderness. And so when David looks out and he says, you know what, as in a dry and weary land, it's very apparent what that looks like. And David's looking around him, and he's looking, and he understands the need for water. But his expression is looking out at a dry and weary land. He says, my soul longs for you. My flesh faints for you. My soul thirsts for you. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said that there was no desert in David's heart, though there was a desert all around him. There was no desert in David's heart because his soul thirsted for the Lord. He thirsted for God. He fainted for God. And listen, we see this in both the normal 
times in David's life and the times of great trial and difficulty in David's life. And this is important. This is an important note. Here's what I want you to understand. Is that our heart's affections in everyday life will be amplified during the trials of life. So if what we set our affections on are those around us, that our greatest affection, our greatest value is our family. Not that we shouldn't. Listen, I I love my family. I'm committed to my family. I think that is a, a godly thing. We should love and be committed to our families. But our family must not take a spot of idolatry to the point that all of my affections, all of what consumes me is built around my family to which I would just cast aside my commitment to the Lord, that everything gathering for corporate worship would be just set aside for the sake of my family, my family, my family. Everything is governed by my family. If that's the case, then when something comes upon my home and my family, then the affections I have there will be amplified and my faith will struggle. If my faith is rightly placed in the Lord, that my greatest affection and desire is for Him, and that by longing for Him and serving Him and seeking Him and growing in love for Him, that in so doing, it informs the way I love my family, the way I serve my family, the way I care for my family, then when those tragedies of life come upon me, then my faith holds fast and I continue in godliness through the trial at hand. See, David's affections were set to flame for the Lord in the good days. Psalm 84, he expresses this. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. David rejoices in the Lord. In the good days, he's on his throne and he sings of the Lord. He anticipates the Lord. He longs for the Lord. But in trying times of Psalm 63 or Psalm 42, what does he say? I turn from the Lord. I renounce the Lord. No. In those difficult days, what does he say? My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs and faints for you. In Psalm 42, 2, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then in that psalm, he says, When will I come before the Lord? He longs for the Lord in the good days and the bad days. David knew nothing of a fair-weather faith. It didn't register for him. He simply loved the Lord. I don't know why God brings trials upon our life. I don't know why God brought this upon David's life. But what I do know is that God often uses trials to solidify our faith and to reveal to us what we truly worship. He exposes us in those moments. So what is your greatest longing and desire? Would we gather with David and say, Oh God, you are my God. Or would we say something else is our God or someone else is our God? Do we gather just to acknowledge truth? Oh God, you're God. Absolutely. But do we also gather and say, Oh God, you are my God. 
the body broken. Oh God, you broke that for me. The, the blood shed, you shed for me, for my sins, for my harsh words, for my disobedience to my parents, for my evil, wicked thoughts about the person that cut me off on the way to church, for my judgmental, higher-than-thou glances to those who don't live the way I want them to live. Oh God, you are my God. He makes this declaration of faith. Now let's look at how this faith is exercised in verses 2 through 8. How is it shown forth? How does it play out in his life in this instance? He declares it. Now what happens? Well, first, in verses 2 to 3, we see that it leads David to look upon the character of God. His faith in God is, is, is firm. He's not shaken. He, he still clings unto the Lord. He's fleeing for his life, right? He's fleeing for his life. He's not standing there and going, okay, well, we'll just see what happens. He's fleeing for his life. He's taking action, but his faith is resolved to be upon the Lord. But what does he find? He looks upon the Lord. Why? Because those who look upon the Lord see that the Lord is wholly true. We just sang it. It's wholly true. So I've looked upon you, beholding what? Your power and your glory. You notice the irony here? That the king looks upon the power and the glory of the king of kings? Do you see this? That the one who should be powerful, who has the kingdom at his hands, who should be able to assemble an army around him, who has slain his ten thousands, what does he do? He looks upon the Lord, and he beholds not his own power and glory, but he looks upon the Lord and his power and glory. Reflecting on the character of God sets things in their proper place. We need to learn that. I, I need not fear the situations of life when I remember that God in His power created life, sustains life, and governs life. I need not fear. I need not fear when the, the, the threats of men when I remember that God alone has power over my soul and that He told me. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew, He said, don't fear those who have no power over the soul, but fear the one who has the keys to cast your soul into hell. I need not fear man. He has no power over me. I need not fear the replacement of what I may lose of my possessions when I remember that God in His power created all things and providentially cares for all of creation supplying our every need. When we reflect upon God's power and His glory, it sets things aright. It sets things in order. Don't be so distracted by everything going on in your life that you fail to remember who God is. But secondly, faith... The faith that David leads him to worship God. Not to just declare his faith, but to actually worship him. In verses 3 to 4, what does he say? My lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. It reminds you of Job. In the midst of this trial of life, he worships. And same thing in Job's life. In Job 1, 20 to 21, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, just go read the first chapter. And you'll get a pretty good picture of what's going on in Job's life. But everything that he holds dear is taken from him except for his own life and his wife. 
And in this moment, Job turns. He says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from Father of lights. Comes down from above. And Job understood that and he realized that, but he did not worship every good and perfect gift. He worshiped the Lord who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. There's a big distinction there. How can David, after losing all he has lost and being in the midst of his own son's betrayal, say this? It's because he understood the power and the glory of the Lord and he was gripped and captivated by the steadfast love of God. Verse 3, what does he say? Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. This is a pretty significant statement. Remember, where is David? He's in the wilderness. What's he doing? He's fleeing. And he says... I will bless you as long as I live. This isn't David sitting on his couch with someone fanning him and feeding him grapes and him going, yeah, as long as I live, I'll bless the Lord. He's not thinking of some real trendy bumper sticker to put on his expensive vehicle or chariot that he has or a nice t-shirt with a great graphic. No, he's fleeing for his life. And he says, as long as I live, I'll bless the Lord. Does this remind you of anything that Paul said? What did Paul say? Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 1? Some of you may remember this from a sermon a little while back. Do you remember what he said? For to me, he's in prison, right? He's in prison. And what does he say? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now look at, look at what David says here. It is very similar David says in verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. For to me to live is you. For to me to live is Christ. As long as I live, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to praise you. And Paul, Paul said, to die is gain. To die is gain. And, and David in this moment, he says, your steadfast love is better than life. It's better than life. David and Paul, both with the same faith, the same perspective that, you know what? I'm going to praise the Lord throughout every trial of life, every difficulty of life, whether I'm fleeing from my own son or whether I'm bound in prison. I'm going to praise the Lord. And if I, if I leave, I'm going to continue to praise the Lord. But in the midst of all of it, I know that Christ is better. I know that Christ is gain. I know that his steadfast love is better than life itself. David here doesn't say, you know what, your steadfast love is better than this aspect of life, it's better than school, it's better than uh, this or that. No, he says it's better than life itself. Life. Here. The steadfast love of God. Here. Far exceeds the value of life. The third thing, the working out of David's faith, the exercise of his faith is this, it leads him to be satisfied in God. It leads him to be satisfied in God. In verses 5 through 8, his satisfaction was not found in the state of his life, but it was found in his Lord. One theologian has said famously, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's true. 
when we are satisfied supremely in God, in Christ, then He is exalted and glorified in us. The soul that is satisfied in God is, is just like Noah in the ark, safe and secure as the floods of life rise and fall. You're safe and secure in God's provision because you're satisfied in God and you're not depending on this or that or that person or this person or your success, anything that you can do. You're depending on the Lord. And so the soul satisfied in God is just like Noah in the ark. You're safe and secure, trusting in His provisions, His care, His control. You look to Him. Well, what was it, though? Specifically, look in the text here. What was it exactly that leads David to be satisfied? He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. We were talking about this this week in the office, and to me, I read that and I hear bacon. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He's got a pound of bacon fried up fresh, right? My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When what? When what? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. It's not when I think about the situation. It's not when I think about what I've lost. It's not when I think about what tomorrow could hold. It's not when I meditate on what I'm afraid of or think about uh, the, the uncertainty of tomorrow. No, it's when I remember you, O oh God, and when I meditate on you, O oh God. That is when he is satisfied in him. We need to understand and value and practice the art, the discipline of remembering God, meditating on God. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Christianity is not a mindless religion. We discipline our mind and we set it upon Him. When we set our mind upon Him, we remember who God is, what He's done. When we meditate on Him, on who He is and what He's done, when we do that, it's like taking a piece of metal and laying it in a fire and just keeping it there. And as it stays there, what happens? It gets hotter and hotter and hotter and it glows red, hot. Our affections for the Lord grow redder and hotter and get white hot when we remember Him and meditate upon Him. What is it that you should remember? What should you meditate on? What about the gospel, thinking about what, what God did in Christ for you? That's the importance of gathering and partaking of the Lord's Supper. That we remember, we reflect, we recall the good news and what God did in Christ. We remember, we reflect on God's past answers to prayer, both in your life and the lives of those around us. That we look and we hear and we re remember and meditate on His faithfulness. We think and we consider the mighty works of God in history. We think back at all that God has done in history. And then we think about all that God has done in our lives to bring us to this point. We meditate on and we remember God's character that in the midst of the trial, nothing has changed of who God is. He is still good. He is still sovereign. He is still wise. He is still merciful. He's still gracious. He's still faithful. All of who God is, it never changes. It never changes. So we look to Him and worship in the midst of the trial. Listen, at this point, I would just say this as kind of a summary statement. That David worships 
and holds fast to his faith because David says, Oh God, you are my God. David's faith and his worship is not in his possessions. It's not in his, his, his position. It's not in people. And so, when David loses people and possessions and position, his faith holds fast because his faith is in God. Let's look at the last thing we see in David here is the confidence of faith in verses 9 through 11. The confidence of faith. You see, the, the, the God-centered faith of the believer is confident in the Lord. It, David, David hasn't forgotten what's going on around him. I, I think that's important to note. It, it's not as though this situation is going on and, and David in his, his great faith and his worship, that he just worships God and he just forgets everything around him. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm just going to float right through this and not even worry about it. No, he doesn't forget David is keenly aware of the fact that he's in the wilderness fleeing for his life and his own son has betrayed him. His own son is undermining him. His own son conspiring against him. His own son turning the whole kingdom against him. He didn't just walk out the door. He's turning the whole people against him. David's fully aware of that. And so in verse 9 to 11, what does he say? But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David, in this moment, remembers who God is. And he also remembers the ultimate end, both for the wicked and the righteous. See, his satisfaction in the Lord his worship of the Lord does not lead him to ignore the reality and the pain and the difficulty and the uncertainty of the situation. It simply rightly frames it for him. It helps him to see the situation in light of who God is and what God does. And so that he views the situation not as overwhelming and, uh, and, and just um, um, crushing, but he views the situation in light of God and who he is and looking to him. He's not racked with bitterness and resentment and anger and withdrawal from the Lord. But he rightly understands the Lord. You see, he, he says in verses 9 to 10, he, he understands that the ultimate end of the unrighteous is destruction. So that those who pursued him for evil reasons, those who were lying about him, they would be thwarted and they would ultimately come to their destruction. He may not know how, he may not know when, but he knows that God is faithful and that vengeance is the Lord's. Likewise, in verse 11, he knows that those who trust in God's good care, those who walk in righteousness before him, will be delivered. Again, he doesn't know how. He doesn't know what this looks like. He doesn't know, oh yeah, this is what it's going to look like. I, I, I'm going to do this and God's going to do this. He, he just says, listen, I know that I'm going to rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exult. It's the same thing. I don't have time to really dig into it, but Psalm 73, you should read Psalm 73 today, this afternoon. 
Asaph writes Psalm 73, and, and, and you, you may be familiar with the psalm. It's when Asaph looks out and he sees the prosperity of the wicked, and it says, he says, man, I almost stumbled. Why? Because he was looking at all the prosperity of the wicked, how their life just seems to be going great. He almost stumbles, he says. He almost turns and, and goes the wrong way. But instead, he, he looks to God in the sanctuary. He beholds the Lord. And because he beholds the Lord, he turns, he's reminded what? He's reminded of the ultimate end of the wicked, the unrighteous, and the end of the righteous. And so it's why at the end of Psalm 73, he, he makes this declaration. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Sounds a lot like David, doesn't it? He's clinging to the Lord. And then he says this. He closes the psalm. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph's confidence is in God. David's confidence is in God. Where is mine? Where is yours? Oh God, you are my God. Who do you worship? What do you worship? You peel back all the layers. What does your heart worship? What's your greatest desire and greatest longing? What does your heart long for? What does it thirst for? What does it faint for as in a dry and weary land? Who do you really worship? Where would you put, oh, what is my God? Do you gather just simply stating truth? God, you are God. Praise the Lord if you do. That's true. It's right. But can you also say, oh God, you are my God. You're my God. I worship you. I've surrendered to you. Are you truly satisfied in Christ? Are you satisfied in Him? Or are you trying to bring everything else in? When all is torn away, everything is ripped away from me, ripped away from you, yet will I worship. Oh God, you are my God. We're going to close. We're going to do so by singing, Behold our God. As we do, I, I pray this will be a moment where we remember and we meditate on the Lord. 
And I, I don't know how you need to respond. I know that this is a moment in which we sing a song in which God is highly exalted and we're beckoned and invited to come and behold Him in His power and His glory. We're reminded of His steadfast love through sending Christ. So maybe this is a moment in which we stand and we sing and, and, and you simply need to listen and be reminded and of the power and the glory of the Lord and just meditate on that for a moment. Maybe it's the moment where you just need to sit down or kneel down where you are and pray. Maybe it's the moment where you need to just come and kneel down before the Lord at the, at the front here. Maybe it's a moment in which you turn to the Lord in faith. We talked about earlier around the Lord's Supper that you would confess Christ is Lord and express that faith, that believing that God raised Him from the dead, that you would turn from your sins and trust Christ today. I don't know. But this is a time for you to respond to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we bow and God, we declare and confess and acknowledge that you are God alone. There is no other. There is no one like you. God, you are greater than all. And you reign over all. And so God, as we gather today, and we gather as those who are broken, those who are weary, those who are struggling, those who have, have had people turn their backs on them, God, those who, who are in the midst of great trials, God, I pray that those of us who are yours, who are believers, who are following you, that God, in this moment, that you would strengthen us by your grace to declare with great faith, oh God, you are my God. You're my God. And we will ever worship you. We'll ever worship you. So God, I pray that, Lord, our heart's affections would glow red hot for you. That we would be deepened in our love for you. That, God, our desires and our longings would be for you above all people, above all positions, above all possessions. That we would love you supremely and find our greatest satisfaction in you and in you alone. Jesus. God, I do pray for friends here. God, who are not believers. God, would you please, again, I pray, reveal to them and show them their need for you, that they would respond in faith. God, please, would you do a work in their life? Oh God, we stand now to worship you and to behold you in your power and your glory and to think upon and sing of your steadfast love that is better than life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.